Welcome to Prep Talk, the emergency management podcast. Find out what you need to know about preparedness, get all the latest tips from experts in the field, and learn what to do before the next disaster strikes. From the emergency management department in the city that never sleeps, here are your hosts, Omar Bourne and Allison Panisi. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening. I'm Omar Bourne. And I'm Allison Panisi. And you are our listeners, and as always, we thank you for joining us. We want you to come back as often as you can, so feel free to listen to Prep Talk on your favorite podcast provider. You can also follow us on social media, on our Twitter at NYC Emergency MGT, Facebook, Instagram, and much more. March is Women's History Month, and we're going to be joined by Dana Golub, Vice President for Programs Management at PBS Public Broadcasting Service. That's right, Omar. In her role, Dana Golub represents PBS and its member stations in all public safety initiatives, including overseeing PBS WARN, which ensures meeting the Federal Communication Commission's mandates to improve wireless emergency alert system capabilities. Thank you, Allison. We are looking forward to hearing from Ms. Golub. But first, you know what time it is. Let's get you up to date on the latest news in the emergency management field. Here's your Prep Talk Situation Report. All right, this is the Situation Report. Let's get started. A nine-day heat wave scorched Antarctica's northern tip in early February. Nearly a quarter of the island's snow covered melted in that time. And by the end of the nine-day heat event, much of the land beneath the island's ice cap was exposed, and pools of meltwater opened up on its surface. Now, during that time, it also experienced its hottest day on record, peaking at 64.9 degrees Fahrenheit. And for our listeners, some context, Los Angeles, California had measured the exact same temperature that day. From Antarctica to New York City and Allison, I have a question for you. Where's all the snow? I thought you wouldn't be complaining about where all the snow is. I'm definitely not complaining. Nevertheless, I digress. So far this winter... Not a single winter storm warning has been issued for the five boroughs here in New York City. In fact, the city has only had a trace of snow for the month of February. This is only the sixth time in history that New York City has had a trace or less of snow in the month of February, which is typically the snowiest month. Now, in total, Central Park has only measured 4.8 inches of snow all season, just over a foot below average and the least snowy season in 13 years. Much of the Northeast has been experiencing a warmer or less snowy winter, which, as you know, I have no problem with. (laughs) But remember, winter is not over and we've been known to have some big snowstorms in the month of March. Winter's not over yet, so. We'll be prepared. We will be prepared. (laughs) So are you a graduate student looking for a career in emergency management? Well, New York City Emergency Management and the John D. Solomon Fellowship for Public Service may be the right place for you. So the John D. Solomon Fellowship for Public Service is the first student fellowship with the city devoted specifically to emergency management. Now, each year, the program provides 10 graduate students in the New York City area the opportunity to complete a nine-month paid fellowship in a New York City government agency or nonprofit organization. To learn more about the program and apply, please visit at nyc.gov forward slash John D. Solomon Fellowship. And that is the Situation Report. Still to come, we will be speaking with Dana Golub from PBS. But first, here is a public service announcement from New York City Emergency Management and the Ad Council. 
Your daughter doesn't want to talk about why her room is a horrible mess. Your son doesn't want to talk about why he's wearing mismatching socks. Your spouse doesn't want to talk about their bad haircut. Families don't have to talk about everything, but they should talk to plan for an emergency. Pack basic supplies in a go bag, water, canned food, flashlights, batteries, medical supplies, IDs, and some cash. Talk about where you'll meet in case you lose one another. And of course, don't forget to pack the dog treats. Talk to your family and make an emergency plan. Go to nyc.gov slash readyny or call 311 to make your family's emergency plan. Brought to you by New York City Emergency Management and the Ad Council. You're listening to Prep Talk, the Emergency Management Podcast. You are listening to Prep Talk, and we are back. Let us welcome our special guest to the show, Dana Golub, Vice President for Programs Management at PBS. Dana, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Let's get right into it. For our listeners, can you describe PBS for anyone who may not have heard about the public broadcasting service? Absolutely. Happy to. So I'm assuming that most of your listening audience has heard of PBS, but uh, you may not know you know, some of the the more specific details of how PBS functions. So Mm -hmm. PBS is not a network the way you would traditionally think of a commercial broadcaster. Uh, We are a member organization and each of our member stations are individually owned and operated. So they may be a state owned entity where the state owns the broadcaster and they are operated from perhaps a central point in the state. Um, They may be a community licensee or they may be owned by a school board or a individual um, entity effectively. But the unique aspect of public broadcasting that is really why we're such a natural partner with public safety is a we're mission driven mm-hmm. and b we're local you know in some cases hyper local that you know your general manager who's making decisions for your station lives there and is also a community member so that combination is really what makes public broadcasting unique and and in my opinion having worked there for a long time really special So in November 2019, PBS celebrated its 50th anniversary. So happy anniversary. Thank you. Um, And we know it as America's largest classroom. It uses media to educate and inspire. So you have more than 330 PBS member stations across all 50 states, which is incredibly impressive. Uh, Talk to us about the organization's mission. Absolutely. So we're celebrating our 50th all year, which has been fun. Um, And our mission is exactly as you said, it's to, you know, use the airwaves to engage and educate and inspire from birth all the way through your life. There's something for everyone on public television. Um, We are a multi-platform organization, so we are not anymore just something you see on TV. Mm -hmm. Um, You can find us online. You can find us streaming. You can um, access us through social media. And then we also do quite a bit that you don't see, including some of our public safety applications. But our mission is really to, um, you know, take the access we have to our community and use it 
in their best interest. So we get like 120 million viewers every month and I think like 26 million online um, touch points with our viewers or users, if you want to call them that. But um, And so we really try to make every touch point something that is educational, inspirational, and to their benefit. So we are not a commercial entity. We are a nonprofit. We are not trying to get the most eyeballs to sell advertising. Um, We are trying to serve our public service mission. So some of that is providing them content that is going to enrich their lives. We, for our kids particularly, we Mm -hmm. focus on content that increases literacy, improves their math skills, um, improves their social and emotional development. And then we also, each of our individual member stations and as an organization, we look at opportunities to use our broadcast airwaves in a manner that is going to improve their lives beyond enriching, but also keeping them safe. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get into that portion of it uh, later on in the conversation. And I like the fact that you said that PBS is local, because I think when you look at emergency management and public safety, why working with and having a connection with PBS works so well is because we're all looking to connect with our local audiences and the people within our communities. That's exactly right. I think for you know New York City, WNET you know, is an active partner in the lives of many of you know the same people that you're helping to keep safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look at other areas of the country and there are community events where the public broadcaster is there bringing literacy and math to kids and helping support and make sure that arts and culture stays an active part of the community. I want to switch gears a little to you. You've been with PBS now for nearly two decades. Uh, Can you talk to us about your career path and what led you to your current role as VP for programs management? Absolutely. So because we're in New York, I will reveal that I was born and raised in Manhattan. Wonderful. Um, We love it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I went to college in Washington, D.C. I went to Georgetown and uh, worked for five years at Time Life Music after college um, doing a combination of product development and some marketing and then you know, there was living at the time in Arlington, Virginia, and and knew that public broadcasting was there. So mm-hmm. um, didn't quite happen into a job, but really kind of laser focused on this is an organization where I would like to work. I believe in their mission. I grew up watching Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers. Yeah. And, and to me, it was, you know, a really a desirable thing to you know, take the time I was going to commit to working and do something that felt enriching for myself and then also beneficial, you know, hopefully to the community. So um, I was fortunate enough to find a job uh, at PBS in 2002. Um, And what I started doing there were uh, grants for stations. So the first thing Mm -hmm. I did, we were converting from analog to digital Mm -hmm. as part of the nationwide Mm -hmm conversion, which was a mandated conversion. So I assisted stations in in getting funding that was provided um, by the government to uh, convert their broadcast facilities from analog to digital and really just lit a fire under the infrastructure part of public broadcasting for me that I understood, you know, when you're a nonprofit, 
you are things are tight and and it's hard and any assistance you can get is really valuable and then also it just helped me learn about what a national a, a universal service means um both organizationally to be able to say we reach 95% of all Americans with our broadcast signal. Um, I Mm -hmm. really learned a lot about, um, you know, one of the values of broadcasting specifically is it's high power, high tower. So there's a tremendous amount of resiliency that you don't see with other entities. Learning that by helping stations with their transmitter build out was really helpful for me when we started to get into the public safety space. So um, we have always been pioneers. You know, what what I'm told, and I don't have, you know, they don't didn't keep a lot of records, but the, the original EBS, the emergency broadcast system, mm-hmm. uh, PBS participated actively in developing the standards. Um, we have looked always as just a natural inclination to help that we have looked at opportunities to keep the public safe at a local station nationally. So in 2006, the the WARN Act was authorized by Congress and it set forth the wireless emergency alert system Mm -hmm. and public broadcasting was part of it. And for me, career-wise, that opened an opportunity where there was a new program being initiated that was going to develop using public broadcasting's infrastructure to build out the wireless emergency alert system. So I was really fortunate. Some of it was hard work and a lot of it was right place, right time. (laughs) um, And was really fortunate to become the executive director of the PBS WARN program. And so that was my first foray into public safety um, and, and executing that project soup to nuts. So figuring out, you know, some very smart engineers said, this is what we would need to do this. um, And then figuring out the, realities of getting it done. Now, to their great credit, they were really spot on in a lot of their, you know, what they told me after was kind of back of the envelope figurings. Mm -hmm. But um, so much of what they suggested we would need to do to develop a backup to the nationwide wireless emergency alert system, they were right. So they gave me a pretty easy gig right out of the gate. (laughs) Um, Some of it was harder than others, but it allowed me to build a team bigger than the team that I was currently managing. It allowed me to, you know, kind of enter the public safety space. And then from there, that just lit a fire to figure out, you know, we weren't just an organization that did one thing in public safety. We were going to be an organization that became a partner to public safety. So that has been my passion and something that I've been working on since 2010. It goes back to what we say sometimes about the emergency management field. It's sometimes it's a small agency with a big mission. And I feel that PBS has sort of taken on that role with PBS WARN. Um, And, you know, you talked about it leveraging the wireless emergency alert system. So for our listeners, wireless emergency alerts are WIAs is the loud tone you might hear mm-hmm. on your cell phone during an emergency. Um, it's something that is provides you know critical safety uh, information to all of us. And the FCC has actually acknowledged the utility of the PBS WARN system uh, in a report on WIA security. The FCC said that PBS WARN can limit the impact of a cybersecurity event by ensuring uninterrupted delivery of wireless emergency alerts or WIAs. Um, and it certainly provides redundancy within the system. So I'm really 
glad that you were able to bring this up and, and share this with our listeners. What are some other ways that PBS works to educate and protect communities nationwide? So what's interesting is when we completed our wireless emergency alert system backup project, the PBS WARN systems, to give you a little more detail on that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the easy shorthand that I describe what PBS's role is in the wireless emergency alert system is we are the batteries in a plug-in alarm clock. So we are a second like source that. of the message. It It is always on. It's not a, oh, we're offline. We need to call PBS. Every uh, box at a carrier site has two inputs. One is their primary connection to FEMA, which is VPN over Internet. Their second is a broadcast base that comes from their local public television station. And so in developing that, you know, I had one enterprising station call me maybe a month after we'd started the project and said, OK, well, what else are we going to do now that you have this? So I said, oh, well, let me try to figure that out. I mean, let me make this work first, please. But also <laughs> let me, you know, let me try to figure that out. And when I started calling around to stations to say, what do you do in public safety? The First response was typically, well, we're not, you know, we we try to use our airwaves to the best of our ability, but I don't really know. But I guess we relay the governor's message every time that there's a state of emergency. We use our social media to retweet any emergency messaging. We um, are initiating a project to send wireless emergency, send all alerts, actually all EAS messages over our air after the tone ends. We rebroadcast them. Um, not just in Spanish, but also in the language that's unique to our constituency. So we figured out how to convert alerts to Hmong and Somali. So that's in Minnesota, um, TPT. But what was so fascinating was that it's such an ingrained that the desire to help is just so natural that they started relaying the tremendous amount of things that each station was doing to assist their community. They have multilingual alerting. They ensure that the governor's message is carried completely and relayed and made available to other broadcasters. Um, We have stations who figure out even the, the not the infrastructure stuff, but the the more basic stuff. So the using your social media to relay uh, emergency messages actually was a really interesting, um, I, I think, believe it came out of Georgia Public Broadcasting that told us about that. And it was fascinating to me because it seems so straightforward. But one of the things about PBS specifically is there's a study that's done every year um, about trusted entities. And for 17 years in a row, public broadcasting is the number one trusted entity. So in an emergency situation, who do you look for for life-saving information? But you go to your trusted source, both because you've already probably subscribed to the Twitter um, or Facebook or other, showing my age by only knowing those two. Uh, (laughs) But, um, you know, if you've already are online looking towards your local public television station as a source of information, when they take the message from emergency management or state and local police or the governor or other, it really is one of those things where you're going to trust the information that you're getting from them because it's it's a, already there's a trust relationship built. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, we, you know, in moments of crisis, the content can be a tremendously valuable resource. So um, we have some programs that stations air 
specifically for emergencies. Every day I learn something new that a public television station is doing in the public safety space. So there are a new program right now called Meet the Helpers, where um, I believe six public television stations are developing content for introducing kids to who the helpers are. I remember going to public school in New York and learning the song about like, go to the policeman if you're lost. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, so I'm police fire, you know, but I was speaking to one of our general managers the other day from Tennessee. And she was saying in Tennessee, the biggest helper is the lineman because that's who they're used to seeing. And that's, you know, getting power back up is vital for Mm -hmm. them. So it was really a fascinating thing. Going back to the local and in each community, there's something unique about how they meet the needs of their customers, you know, in public safety. I could probably talk all day about <laughs> each individual public safety activity or action that a, that a station's doing, and I'm endlessly amazed. You know, the, I'll, I'll end this segment on uh, some of our stations provided these PBS Play like uh, consoles, effectively, mm-hmm. they, you know, wow. when we had all of those hurt, we, I mean, we constantly are having hurricanes, but the the hurricanes that hit, I believe it was Irma and Maria. Mm-hmm. 2017. Uh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they got a, you know, a partner to help fund the cost, but sent a bunch of them to the shelters with the idea that the kids really needed to be entertained and somewhat distracted so that their parents could get the information they needed to find them another place to live, to engage with their local emergency management. So what endlessly impresses me about our local stations is that they aren't waiting for a bureaucratic requirement. They're not like, look, well, how am I going to get credit for this first and then I'll do it? You know, if there's something they have that would benefit somebody, they are scrappy and mission driven about figuring out how to get it to them. And I love everything you just said, because when you think about emergency management here in New York City, our Ready New York for Kids program, we have a superhero, Ready Girl, who goes out to schools and she teaches kids about emergency preparedness. And she's at community fairs, community centers, schools, you name it. And the kids really gravitate to this. And it's an engaging, fun way to teach not only kids, but families about what they should know uh, before an emergency. And it's extremely effective just meeting people where they are on their level and engaging kids and then in turn families. Right. And it goes back to emergencies are always local, whether it's, Mm -hmm. you know, a devastating something similar to like Hurricane Sandy, which obviously affected all five boroughs here in New York City, um, you know, almost eight years ago now. Um, But regardless of that, we have things every day that happen. We have water main breaks. We have fires. Everything is local and it's about the community coming together. And and like you said before, Dana, that public trust mm-hmm. to look to mm-hmm. your broadcast. I mean, I remember as as a kid and even growing up here in New York, you always would turn on the news. You would listen to the radio. You would see, you know, what information is out there. You would go to that media source, that trusted media source time and time again. And the fact that PBS has already proactively done this and even looking at it from the angle of, okay, an emergency has happened. How do we inform the public without frightening them, making information and tools and resources for children 
is paramount and and going back to Ready New York, it all comes together is that, you know, it's a shared responsibility. Even when you look from a communication standpoint, you're the director of communications here. I work as the press secretary. We're constantly building relationships prior to the emergency so that people know who to turn to, mm-hmm. New York City Emergency Management. They know who we are. Right. We're a trusted source, Notify NYC as well. Uh, and the relationship is built so that when they need to get the information in what we like to call gray skies before the emergency, they know where to turn. Right. Absolutely. And it goes back to something else I remember from PBS, from Mr. Rogers saying, look to the helpers. If there's, if you, if there's an emergency, something bad happens, always look to the helpers. And the fact that there is programming for that, I think, is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just switching gears again. Um, so <laughs> a lot of well, gears to switch. A lot of gears to switch. Um, but that's what we do. March is Women's History Month. Uh, we look at contributions women make in society, whether it's in the workplace or at home. And it's important to pause and honor the significant roles that women have played throughout history. Mm-hmm. So as a leader at PBS, I would like to know, do you have one or several female role models that have inspired you in your career? Absolutely. So you may know that PBS's CEO is a woman, Paula Kerger. And she is amazing. She really sets a very high bar for how to run a mission-driven organization and is really inspiring both in her accessibility. I mean, we have meetings, all staff meetings, where she says, if you need to know more about this or want to know more about this, whatever the topic is, you can call me. And she means it. You know, she is actively involved in engaging women on all levels to help them grow in their careers. And then she can speak eloquently and from the heart about the programming, the content, the the mission. And I have been very fortunate um, to have, you know, the access that I've had to a boss like that. And then we also have in our general counsel's office, our general counsel is a woman, Catherine Lauderdale. And inspiring as well. I mean, one of the things I noticed when I first started working on this project, you know, a lot of lawyers involved when you're making commitments like this. Yes. Um, And so what I noticed and, and have really tried to learn from as I've watched the legal team is how when they bring something to their general counsel, they make sure that it's vetted and and carefully done. She sets a high bar on work quality, but she's not scary, you know, which Mm -hmm. is a hard, hard balance to hit that you don't want to be so casual that somebody's wasting your time by bringing you something that's not ready, but you also don't want to be scary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so um, watching that these strong women lead an organization like this um, has just been exceptional for me and a, a real privilege. You guys have been recognized for your programming. Uh, For example, PBS Kids recently won the 2020 Kids Screen Award for Channel of the Year, uh, second time in a row, and the sixth time since the award's inception in 2011. So you guys are running away with this. (laughs) Um, I got to stop here because I grew up uh, in Barbados. And at the time when I grew up in Barbados, we had one TV station. CBC is what it was called, Caribbean Broadcasting Corporation. And every day at 4 p.m., Sesame Street (laughs) would come on. And so I would remember going home from school. I had to do my homework first. But at four o'clock, sunny day, sweeping (laughs) the 
clouds away. We were there, my friends and I, we were there to watch Sesame Street. Obviously, you know, you learn a lot through that programming and, and other programs that you guys have. So, I mean, a, a fantastic, spectacular job at winning these awards. As you look ahead to the next decade or so, what is the vision to continue PBS's mission and then the inspirational and educational program and not only for kids, but for all people? What impresses me most about PBS is that they never stop pushing to deliver content that is high value. And what I have seen is as our audiences move from over-the-air broadcast to other places, they are figuring out how to reach them. So one of the new programs we have is American Portrait. Um, I have was fortunate enough to see a panel uh, presented yesterday about them. And it's a multi-platform program that invites people to share their version of what being American looks like. Mm -hmm. So wow. it is a phenomenal new program that just really hits on all levels. And it can be as simple as a tweet that someone shares, and it can be as complicated as a video. And it's going to be a collaborative, massive uh, program at every local station that really introduces Americans to each other, you know, right. that you may sound different and you may look different, but you're all Americans. And it, and it really looks like it's going to be a beautiful program. And then our kids content as well. A couple of things we've done, you know, in the relative recent past, we have a 24-7 kids channel now um, that is available online. And some of our stations also carry it on a sub channel. So in hospitals, before a child is of school age, or maybe they're preschool age, but don't have access to preschool, you know, knowing that our content is so educationally enriching, um, it is tremendously valuable that they can get it. You know, you're, you envision yourself with a child who might be watching TV several hours a day and you want them watching something that is going to educate them and is not mm -hmm. going to be a million fast moving pictures, but mm -hmm. is really going to have, you know, been developed to help grow their brain in a positive way. Yeah. Um, and then also we have new kids programming coming out all the time, you know, that we partner with the Fred Rogers company and, you know, the, the new, there's a new show that we just uh, got a little preview of called Donkey Hody. And oh. just, it comes from a Mr. Rogers character. I believe it's like the granddaughter of the original Mr. Rogers character who now has her own show. Oh, She's wow. a donkey. Mm -hmm. It looks so neat. And now, is this breaking news? On, I don't on hope not. <laughs> I probably should check, but no, I don't believe so. Okay. I, think it, I think we've already put out some info okay. on it. All right. um, <laughs> if it is, sorry, Paula. No, um, you heard it here first. That's what we do. We yeah. break news as well. That's right. <laughs> but I think, you know, it, it really, the, the idea that we are both innovating in the kids space and tying it back to, you know, some of the heart and soul of our origin. You know, it's mm -hmm. also Mr. Rogers' 50th anniversary yeah. and... Um, we have Daniel Tiger that, you know, is a, a program that was inspired by another Mr. Rogers character and just making sure that what we're developing is 
being used positively and is being designed and created with a child's best interest in mind is how we stay who we are and stay true to our mission. Wonderful. So with all of this innovative programming and inspiring others, how can people support their local PBS station? Oh, great question. Um, So you can donate if that is something that you're able to do. You you should hopefully know your local PBS station. You can also go to uh, PBS.org and it will localize your experience right away. You can volunteer your time. You can reach out to the station and then also stay engaged. You know, follow your local public television station on Twitter, on social media, mm-hmm. retweet stuff that looks good. Um, we have Protect My Public Media that helps encourage federal funding and, and continued support. Um, our federal funding is always in question, as everybody else's. It's hard times mm-hmm. and uh, it's really vital. It's a spark. You know, it, it depending on the station, it, it can be a very critical part of your overall operating budget or it might be small depending on who you are. But who we are collectively is a, a nationwide um, universal service mission. So to be able to keep everybody alive, we rely on that federal funding. Any last words uh, for our listeners? So I did want to talk about one new Mm -hmm. public safety product that we have. Um, Calling it product might not be exactly right, but it's it's an initiative. So we have discovered um, through the help of some emergency management offices, including yours, (laughs) that uh, one of the things that a service we could provide that is a missing piece in alerting right now is connecting back emergency management offices to the wireless emergency alerts. Mm-hmm. So we put out every single wireless emergency alert over every single public television transmitter, and they are broadcast through something called data casting, where it goes out over the television transmitter, but it's not seen on air. And what came to us through some emergency management discussions was that Many times an emergency management office who might be responsible for a whole state or a big city, um, you know, a large area might not know if a wireless emergency alert has been issued because they're not in the actual area where the alert hits their cell phone. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we figured out we could provide is access back to literally see the alert. So all, you know, it's a relatively small lift. You know, you you basically have to have a TV antenna uh, and a receiver and a little piece of software that we've written that's open source, but it allows you to look at the alerts as they're coming in in real time. And we also send all of the detail that an alert originator uses when they issue an alert. So beyond the 360 character text that you might see on your cell phone, there's a lot of content in there that is not seen when the alert is received as a wireless emergency alert. But public television does send all of those. So what's nice about it is if you're sitting in an emergency management office or anywhere where you could see this application being of value, you can know who originated the alert when the alert expires. So it really has opened up a potential to take the infrastructure we've already built and find another value in it. So we have 
you know, just kind of come up with this idea recently. Um, we're calling it Eyes on iPods. Probably <laughs> by the time this airs, we've changed the name, but uh, you guys are probably familiar with that. I think yeah. WIA used to be called CMAS, so mm-hmm. that's what we mm-hmm. do. Um, <laughs> but in terms of the, the concept, it's going to stay the same, and we're figuring out how to deploy it in a way that's beneficial. Yeah, and we look forward to it, and it, it will add another redundancy, obviously, to the system. Yeah. Exactly right. If you don't know, now you know. You're listening to Prep Talk, the emergency management podcast. It's time for Prep Talk Rapid Response. It is rapid response time, and if you are a first-time listener, it's simple. Omar and I will ask questions, and our guest will give the first answer that comes to mind. Okay, Dana, first question. What is one emergency item you cannot live without? A flashlight. Wonderful. What is the best professional advice you have received? Mm. Follow your heart. So that has been tremendous to me to do work that is personally satisfying. Okay, so work-related question. What is your favorite show, PBS or otherwise? Ooh, uh, okay, well, I, I'm a news junkie, so I love News Hour. Okay. And then if kind of the all-time favorite show that anytime I see it, I can't turn away from it would be Friday Night Lights. Ooh. That's okay. a good one. Yeah. What's on your playlist? Ooh, um, Hadestown. I, we just went and saw the show and mm-hmm. can't stop listening to it. Oh. I have to add that to my Broadway list. <laughs> um, last question. Sum up the work you do in one word. Fulfilling. Like that one. Yeah. Speaking with Dana Golub from PBS on not only inspiring communities um, across the nation with educational programming for everyone, but also keeping the public safe. So thank you very much for your contributions. Um, For those interested in learning more about PBS and its work, you can visit PBS.org. Thank you very much. That's this episode of Prep Talk. If you like what you heard, you can listen anytime online or through your favorite RSS feed. Until next time, stay safe and prepared.